Wednesday, July 11, 2018. This is Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Timothy Lawson. Hope everybody had a wonderful and safe 4th of July. Hope you had fun celebrating our nation's independence, however you did so. I had the pleasure of watching the fireworks here in Washington, D.C., and it is just the perfect backdrop for uh, a scene like that. Fireworks over the Washington Monument, uh, really incredible. Not much to talk about on my side of things as far as uh, updates or events or things that, to keep in mind. If you have not heard the last benefits breakdown that I did, that would have been last Monday. I did it on the Vet Change app, and it is a an app that veterans can use to help monitor and manage their drinking habit. Uh, so however that looks like for you, if, if drinking is something that you want to get a better hold of, it's something you want to quit, you just want to monitor it, see, uh, get get real data on uh, on how much you're drinking, it's a it's a wonderful resource in that sense. Vet Change app. Uh, it's available in the uh, Apple App Store, uh, and there's also a desktop version as well. Just Google Vet Change app. This week's feature interview is with Army veteran Adam Stork. Adam recently went on a summit up Denali, up in Alaska. Uh, he was there with a team to complete a research expedition uh, summiting what is North America's highest peak. Uh, there is limited data on high-altitude cardiology, and uh, Adam was chosen to be part of the team uh, that went up Denali to monitor uh, their, uh, their performance and the way that their body was responding to that challenge uh, not only uh, summiting Denali, but uh, in that high altitude. And Adam's also doing some really cool stuff uh, in his day job down in Kenya, and I'll let him talk a little bit about that. Uh, so without further ado, Adam Stork, Army veteran, recently summited North America's highest peak, Denali. Enjoy. We grew up together. We believed in something bigger than ourselves. The military took me to one side of the world and her to the other. And even though she was always the strong one, when we caught up years later, I found out she had fallen on some hard times. It was her call to make, but doing it together made all the difference. For veterans who are homeless or on the brink of homelessness, call 877-424-3838. Wonderful. Adam Stork, sir, thank you so much for joining us. We have uh, uh, plenty of things to talk about today, but we're going to start this interview where we start every interview, and that is the decision to join the United States military. That's the one thing that all of us veterans have in common. Please bring us back to that decision for you. Yeah, you know, this is one of those questions that uh, it doesn't matter who you're talking to. It's it's probably going to come up at some points uh, when you talk about uh, military service. Um, and I think that that's because, you know, for those who joined, we're curious uh, what other people's motivations are. And, and for those who don't have that experience, um, you know, they don't have the mental frame to, to really understand necessarily always um, the, the kind of path that lead, led people to, to decide to take such a, an important step. Um, for me, it was, you know, it, it was kind of built out of this quest to find a life of service. Um, I grew up in a family where both of my parents are doctors. Um, and, you know, growing up in Seattle, you're kind of imbued with this sense of um, the world is a lot bigger than you are. And um, in order to have an impact, you need to figure out how to serve something larger than yourself. Um, and, you know, I think for me and for, for a lot of, you know, 18, 19 year old young men uh, back in 2005, 2006, um, the military was kind of a natural place to look for for that life of service. Um, and so I think that was that was the thing that really gave me my first push towards um, is joining the military and, and is doing ROTC during college something that I would be interested in in pursuing. Um, and it actually took me about a semester um, at school before I started down that journey. And, and um, the way I approached it is um, I went to University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels. 
Um, and we have three different ROTC battalions present there, um, Army, Navy, and Marines. I'm sorry, Army, Navy, and Air Force. The Marines are uh, a portion of the Navy ROTC. Um, and uh, so for me, I, I basically set up meetings with uh, each unit to try to figure out kind of which uh, mode of service or which branch um, would, would be the most uh, compelling to me. Uh, and I think I landed on the Army in large part um, because uh, of a couple of different factors. The first was... Um, you know, I, I really, I'm an outdoors person. I really loved the fact that, um, you know, our focal point in the army, uh, of our training and our kind of broader missions was, was get out into, um, you know, into the outdoors and use that as your, basically that's where our battles are going to be fought. Um, I think, in addition to that, there's the the very strong uh, undercurrent of leadership training um, and the focus on every soldier as a leader um, that really resonated with me in a way that that um, was was a huge draw. Uh, and then the third piece was just the the people that were in the uh, battalion, uh, the ROTC battalion that I met from the cadre to the to the other cadets. Um, it just seemed like a very tight knit community and and one where um, you know, you could really kind of, I could see myself growing and developing within. Um, and some of my closest friends from my college years are, are from that time. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about a, a close friend or a great leader that you had while you were in the military. You can choose either one, but tell me about that person. Oh man. Uh, there are so many to choose from. Um, you know, I think, for me, when it comes to great leader, um, I always fall back onto um, my uh, basically my raider, my my supervisor when I was on my second deployment. Um, guy named Lieutenant Colonel Bullock, uh, Alexander Bullock, um, and he was the brigade S three. Um, so the operations, the head of operations for for the brigade, about five thousand people. Um, and we were the theater engineer brigade in country. So we were overseeing all of the coalition engineering units um, uh, across the country, the ones that weren't reporting directly to uh, infantry commands. Um, and uh, my role within that was uh, as the head of strategy for our Afghan army development. So I was focused on, um, this was in 2013. So the Afghan army engineers were just being um, kind of constituted as, as an entity. So I was really responsible for helping to shape and direct the um, strategic direction uh, of that organization and then figuring out how to, how to train the skills that they needed. And I think the thing for me that made um, Colonel Bullock such a um, positive leader and such a, a, an amazing force in, in my life and, and in the lives of the, the other captains that I was working with at the time is um, – he, he was one of those people who believed very deeply in the idea of servant leadership. Um, and he built his leadership style with us, the way he um, interacted with us, the way he managed us around this um, kind of idea that his biggest job, the best thing that he could do in his position um, is clear the path for us to um, reach our maximum potential. Um, and I think, I think that that's something that, that I've definitely carried with me is, as a benchmark of positive leadership. What prompted your transition out of the military then? Yeah, um, there were a number of factors that all kind of came together at the same time. So I had uh, been a captain for about a year and was looking at um, coming back from deployment, um, you know, the, the natural kind of decision point. Um, of, a, of a junior officer, the first natural decision point of, do I go to captain's career course in the army um, and basically uh, increase my time in service by somewhere between two and a half to four years? Um, and that's kind of choosing in the path of, I want company command. Um, I want to continue to do this for, for that much longer. And I want to have that experience and see if this um, can continue to be a career for me. Or the other branch of that is, you know what, um, I've had a great experience, um, It's but I, I feel as though um, I am better 
um, place to grow and develop myself by departing now and seeing what other opportunities are out there. Um, and for me, the latter was really the option that, that, um, kind of drew me in. Um, and part of that was related to the fact that this was, this was now 2013. Um, you know, Iraq had basically, uh, consolidated to very little U.S. presence. Afghanistan was heading in the same direction. Um, and so looking at the kind of forward forecasts of the next four years, it really felt as though, um, you know, we were going into a constrained budgetary environment with less money and time for training, um, with fewer opportunities to deploy and actually do the work uh, in real life as opposed to training to do the work. Um, and it just didn't feel like the right path for me to, to continue to, to dedicate time into the organization. I felt like it was a, you know, I had, I had had an amazing five years, um, and I think I was ready to move on. And I think that the, I, the opportunities that I saw outside, uh, of the military kind of were pulling me more than the ones I saw within it. Yeah. Okay. A, a friend of mine that I had bef- prior to me joining the military who who also joined uh, the Marine Corps reached out to me and said, hey, I got, I got this story for you on this group of guys that are, uh, are going up on Denali for a research summit. You were a part of that, that's right? Yeah, I was. Yeah. Um, so tell tell us the nature of the um, of the summit, the research, and uh, what you know the overall objective of that that adventure was. Yeah. So uh, it, it's it was a pretty cool opportunity. I I kind of stumbled upon it um, through a mutual friend of of uh, one of the senior folks in the organization. The organization that that organized it is called USX, um, and their mission is basically to connect service members with uh, STEM research, um, particularly on uh, kind of more aggressive backcountry expeditions. So the first expedition that they basically organized um, a couple years back was uh, a summit attempt on Everest. That one was successful. Um, And this is kind of the follow-up to that, um, where uh, our kind of our mission, so to speak, was to uh, collect data uh, on how the cardiovascular system reacts to uh, acclimatization and increases in altitude um, and to the stress and exertion that naturally come as part of um, big mountain expeditions. Uh, and specifically, the, the researcher Dave Olson um, is looking at um, the kind of the impact on the flight, fight or flight response uh, and the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, which is what really regulates um, a lot of the body's internal processes, both for rising to the occasion when a stressful situation occurs and also in recovering and, and Um, pulling the body back down when it's necessary to kind of calm down and focus. Um, And so we, for the entirety of the expedition, were wearing persistent EKG monitors um, basically stuck uh, onto onto our breast um, by a company called Cardiosolo, um, Cardiosolo. And they basically um, allowed us to constantly collect this data on what our heart was doing um, as we were, as we were climbing the mountain. Um, and you know, I think we, we found, we got very fortunate in a lot of ways, uh, with the, the way that our expedition, um, kind of, uh, progressed. We, we were stuck for a few days by weather, um, not being able to even fly on the mountain. But as soon as we got there, we just had ideal weather windows the entire way up and managed to successfully summit, uh, in 13 days, um, which is uh, on the significantly faster side. Uh, most teams will will plan for somewhere between 21 and 28 days for the full expedition, um, and we did. We were able to do it in 15. So, yeah, um, fantastic, fantastic. You know, it's a testament to the other people that are that were on the trip. Um, it's a, a testament to the organization um, that uh, Elise, who's the um, trip organizer and also one of the key team members um, put in uh, and really on, on the team's ability to kind of pick each other up when we needed it and, and you know, drive forward for success. Yeah, so Denali is North America's highest peak. Um, is this the first of this type of summit that you've done? 
Uh, certainly the first of, of this type of kind of big expedition. Um, you know, I, growing up in Seattle, I, I spent my youth playing in the Cascades, uh, and that included quite a bit of, uh, mountaineering in, in and around the, the Cascades. So Mount Rainier, Mount Baker, Mount Adams. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on kind of mid-sized mountains, uh, in, in the lower 48. And then I was extremely fortunate. I, I spent a couple of summers working as a instructor with uh, national outdoor leadership school. Uh, and my instructor training course, um, was half mountaineering, half backpacking, uh, up in the Wrangell St. Elias national park in, uh, Eastern Alaska, which is one of the more remote and stunningly beautiful national parks that, that, um, that the U.S. has. Um, and we spent 16 days uh, on the Alaska glaciers, uh, but much, much lower altitude than, than what we're talking about and, and a very different sort of mindset. Um, you know, when you're when you're doing base camping on a glacier and, and kind of exploring around the smaller objectives, it's, it's a very different sort of mindset than when you're trying to tackle something uh, of the scale of, of Denali. Yeah, you mentioned Mount Baker. I, I've, uh, I've spent many a time sledding on, on Mount Baker. You, I mean, you briefly described sort of the team's objective going up there, your involvement, but could you uh, speak a little more to your 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 role on the um, on the mission and what that experience was like? Yeah, you know, I I think I initially started in a pretty backseat role. Um, you know, I was I was one of the later team team members to be added, uh, and that was from a, a combination of things, including, you know, I needed to be able to find time with work to to take off, and um, you know, I'm I'm working between London and Nairobi, Kenya, so it's it's not a small ask to run away for a month. To, to Alaska. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think I started out kind of as a, um, not, I wouldn't say backseat member, but, but kind of a, just a member of the team. And, um, you know, we, we didn't really have strict roles, um, that were defined beforehand. Um, I think that's the beauty of, of mountaineering, particularly with the team, the size that we had, we ended up only having five people on our team. Um, but that that type of size means it's really dynamic, and on any given day, you you can kind of step into different roles. So you know, I'll, I'll admit the um, the first two move days that we had, um, I was definitely the slow one in the pack. Uh, I was struggling hard. I had too much weight. Um, I was needing to be kind of uplifted and carried by by Nick, who was on the on the rope team with me, and by other members of the team. Um, and you know, as as I um, kind of got through that first couple um, couple cycles, I actually started to feel a lot better. And so, towards the end of the of the expedition, certainly on the next move day and on on the one after that, um, I was kind of more of more of that driving supportive force. Um, for, for other people who were having a bad day. And I think, you know, the, there's, when you're in, when you're on an expedition, particularly when you're on an, an, an expedition with people that you like and you trust, um, and you know, you work really smoothly with, um, you kind of enter this, um, communal state where, um, you don't really need to have formalized roles. Um, people just jump in and do the right thing at the right time to, to help the, the group meet its its shared goal. Yeah, you mentioned that you, you, you carried a lot of weight. Was that just by design of how they split up the materials, or did you just personally just pack more than you needed to? A uh, combination of a couple of different things. Uh, I think, you know, in reflection, we all as a group – uh, individually and collectively brought way too much food. Um, and yeah, it's funny you uh, say that, but my, my wife and I have, have recently went on like a multi-day hike and nothing like a summit. But one of the things we noticed at the end was like, man, we, we really could have done food better. Like that was, it yeah. was, yeah, it was one of those. And I think, and I don't, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. It, I think we were so afraid of running out of food that, 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 we didn't even come close of like being like it wasn't like we were one meal away like we were multiple meals over what we truly needed yeah i think i had 25 pounds coming off the mountain uh in just in coming coming off the mountain coming off the mountain and that was 
So part of that was a, a, the fact that it took us 15 days instead of 21. We had initially planned okay. for a much longer expedition. But a big part of it, too, was the, the person on the expedition who was planning the food beforehand had had a really bad previous experience where he was on an expedition that didn't have enough food and he felt like he wasn't getting enough calories and it really sapped him of energy. So I think he overcorrected. And that got the rest of us scared. And so we overcorrected and it just kind of snowballed. Uh, we, the, the nice thing is uh, on, on a mountain like Denali where you're going up and coming down the same route, um, you're able to leave a bunch of stuff as soon as you, you notice that it's uh, not necessary to carry it further up the mountain. You can just cache it where you are. So we, we left pretty substantial caches, both at, at, um, camp one, which is at about 7,800 feet. Um, and at camp three, which is at about 11,000 feet. How, how has this inspired you to, to do more summits? You're going to go run off and, and try to do K2 sometime or what, what, uh, <laughs> are, have you, have you checked off the major summit off your bucket list and, and, uh, stick, stick to maybe some more reasonable challenges? Well, you know, I don't think this either ignited nor did it peter out any sort of desire for me to get on top of uh, to get on top of mountains. I I love being in the backcountry. I love the high mountains specifically. Um, I'm my happiest when I'm on a glacier. It's it's one of those places that because it's so uninhabitable um, and because it's so different from any other frame of reference that you could ever get it's it, to me it's one of the most um calming and cathartic and kind of flow inducing um sort of environments and and that's something that I'll, I'll never get away from um you know i we we weren't even we were still in the misery of minus 20 temperatures and we were already talking about um you know what what we might want to do next year is as at least a partial group if not a full group so you know i don't think that flame's ever going to go out for me much much to the disappointment of my girlfriend who would much prefer me to stay closer to home <laughs> other than like the weight what what do you think made it so challenging i guess what what part of your physical performance do you feel like you were having the biggest difficulty with uh, for me, it was all about preparation. I had a really hard time uh, training uh, as adequately as I would have liked to for for this mountain. Um, you know, I between a work schedule that had me uh, traveling between continents once uh, once a month, um, and just a, a really hard time getting any sort of vertical altitude training living in London, um, the impossibility of getting any training with a sled because you carry, you know, a substantial part of the weight that you're, you're bringing up on, on a sled that you drag behind you, um, which totally throws off the dynamic going uphill. So it's just a combination of a, a number of different things. And I think for me, it was really my body needed to have those first few days, um, to, to kind of snap back into it and adjust. And once that happened, um, you know, I, I was in a much more comfortable place, but you know, it, it was just, it was an adjustment period. Um, and I, I was not able to adequately prepare for the, the scope or the scale that we encountered on the first few days. Yeah. So, I mean, I know this, I know the, um, the, you just completed the summit like what weeks ago, right? Like beginning of June. Yeah, we uh, we were standing on top on May thirty first. On May thirty first, okay. Yeah. Um, and so I know, I know that's I know we're we're soon after, but are you aware of some of the maybe the discovery, some of the the, the data that came out of that that might be interesting? So we haven't gotten the data back yet, in part um, because the we we in order to baseline our performance. Uh, both before and after we actually spanned a week uh, of data before we got on the mountain and a week after. Um, and that week after was a little bit, um, we all basically had to wear the, uh, monitors home and send them back to Dave, the, the researcher, um, so he could collect and, and collate everything. And that, that process hasn't quite completed yet. So we don't have, I, I haven't seen any, uh, outputs of that data just yet. Um, uh, but we're hoping to, to have that, um, at least the first initial look within another month or so. 
Yeah, and um, I, I know you mentioned it at the beginning when we were talking about the objective, and I don't know if you can expand on this a little bit more. Um, you know, there's limited data on high altitude cardiology. Um, you know, what, you know, how valuable is this to how we can understand the body's performance in that environment? Yeah, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. There's not there's not a lot of data right now, and the number one. Um, killer of men over 34 in in the high mountains is uh, sudden cardiac death, which is basically heart attack. Um, and it's very poorly understood. I mean, people, the, the people who are getting into the high backcountry are folks that are in shape. Um, they probably train quite well for, for the environment. Um, you know, there are people who have been there before, who have done it before. Um, and so it's, it is kind of this mystery behind what happens within the, the workings of the heart that cause it to stop like that. Um, I think more broadly, it, it paints a window into uh, how does the body cope with um, conditions that it's not used to and, and conditions that are really um, challenging from a survival perspective. Um, so, you know, this, this expedition certainly isn't the end of the road for this, this type of research. Um, you know, five data points does not a research study make. Um, but I think that as, you know, as part of the early stage data collection, um, on, on this particular focus area, it's, it's got a lot of value, both for, for people who like to spend their time, uh, running up to 17,000 feet, um, but also just more broadly for for better understanding how the heart copes with um, stressful environments. Sure. Uh, and for those listening at home, uh, if you are for some reason unfamiliar with the name Denali, uh, it was Mount McKinley uh, up until 2015 uh, until it got its name changed to Denali. Um, Adam, I, I know uh, we brought you on here to talk about the summit, but I know that you know in in, uh, in the other part of your life, uh, you are splitting time between London and Kenya, uh, working on power challenges in Africa. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So I'm actually speaking to you from Nairobi uh, right now. I, I spend um, between a quarter and a third of my time um, down at our Nairobi office. I work for a company that's called M Copa Solar. Uh, M is in mobile. Copa, K-O-P-A, is the Swahili word for borrow. Um, and really what, what our company is founded on is um, there's a, a pretty extensive network of, of mobile money here in Kenya, which means that you can pay people peer-to-peer -peer or person-to-company um, using a text message from yeah. a standard feature phone. Think your old-school Nokia brick phones that had Snake. Um, you can take one of those and actually transfer money from person to person using an SMS. Um, and they've had that system here in Kenya since uh, 2008. Um, and it's extremely widespread, something in the, in the range of 92% of the population, the adult population, um, has a, a mobile money account. Um, this, mind you, uh, in a country where only 67% is connected to grid electricity. Wow. Um, yeah. And so where we come in, um, and certainly when we were founded, the, that percentage connected to electricity was a lot lower. Um, where we come in is we, we basically um, have small solar lighting systems. So think little battery pack, solar panel, uh, three LED lights, four LED lights in some of our products, um, a USB charger for your phone, uh, a flashlight, and a radio, a little portable radio. Um, and we're able to communicate with that device over the data network, which is pretty, pretty well established here in Kenya. It's surprising how far into the rural areas that reaches. So we can communicate directly with our, with our devices, which means that what we can do is we can basically sell it to our customers on credit. Um, so they pay us a, an initial deposit um, and uh, that's basically our way of validating that they're somebody who uh, is going to use this product. We know that uh, they've saved up enough to buy it from us um, to pay that initial deposit. It's about 10% of the total product price. Um, and then we charge them the equivalent of 50 cents a day um, for a period of 365 payments. Um, and the innovation comes in. 
because uh, if our customers, for whatever reason, run into financial trouble or decide not to top up their their system uh, on a given day, we're okay with that. We don't mind that. Um, but we do send a message to the device and it turns off. So basically, if I'm a customer and I've bought a, a device from MCOPA, um, I uh, and I run into financial problems and I can't pay my my uh, 50 cents today, my lights will shut off. I won't have my lights today. I might not have my lights tomorrow. But if the next day I get some more money because I sell some of my produce at the market, um, as soon as I pay my next 50 cent uh, increment, um, the lights go back on. And once our customers have paid us 365 payments of that 50 cents, um, then the, the system is theirs to own uh, and they can use it uh, as, as much as they like. Um, and really w- where we were aiming at is to, to replace the cost of kerosene, um, which is a huge persistent cost and a huge health issue for, for um, people in rural off-grid areas in sure. Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, the other piece that we're trying to solve for is is that uh, access to, to low-cost finance. Um, and by being able to combine these two, we've been able to extend lighting um, to millions of people in, in Kenya and Uganda. Um, we're above 600,000 customers, and we now have uh, a couple of different products we sell, including our base solar lighting system and uh, a solar-powered television. That's pretty incredible. That's some uh, that's some interesting work. It ha- what have um, what about this work or about the culture there in Kenya has sort of surprised you since you started getting into this work? You know, Kenya is an amazing place uh, in terms of the the energy and the culture that you find here. Um, one of the more uh, kind of encouraging and exciting aspects is there's this uh, underlying. Uh, entrepreneurial spirit um, in the sense that if there's an opportunity, um, Kenyans are the first ones there to try to take advantage of it. Um, and, you know, it. The, the joke is that everybody in Kenya has a side hustle. Um, and, and it's kind of true. I heard a story about uh, a senior vice president at one of the, the big companies here in Kenya who on her lunch break would uh, sell food out of the back of her car. Um, because she, that was her side hustle. That was the thing she did on the side. Um, (laughs) and you know, it's, it's this, it's this sense of optimism that comes along with that. Um, like we can make something of this, we can make something of, of, uh, the hand that we've been dealt, um, that I think is, is really powerful. Um, and is one of the reasons why Kenya right now is such a hotbed for international investment and, and entrepreneurship. They call it the Silicon Savannah um, here, here in Nairobi because there's a ton of software development um, that's, that's located here. Oh, interesting. You, you mentioned that the, you know, they have that uh, mobile-to-mobile money transferring service uh, through their, uh, their mobile devices. And I'm trying to think, like 2008, like, I, I think I was still using PayPal. Then right, not that yeah. PayPal, not that PayPal's obsolete, but I think that that was as as uh, convenient as it, and advanced as person to person money transfers had really was really for us was at, in two thousand eight. So the the idea of being able to transfer money through a mobile device, I th- you know, it was still a few more years later that it was sort of commonplace in America to do that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I first got Venmo in like 2013. Yeah. Um, so a full five years after, and even then, that wasn't that widespread. You know, it took another couple of years for that really to take hold. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, Adam, tell me, tell me about a skill set or a an experience that you had in the military that you feel like is um, contributing to your success today, and you can use that to inform the experience in the summit or in the work that you're doing there in in Kenya. Yeah, so um, I, I can certainly pick out a, a specific experience if if uh, if we want to go into stories. Sure. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think before we get into into stuff like that, I, I think broadly speaking, um, you know, the the military teaches us how to uh, kind of react and adapt within a team to a shifting environment that is uncertain. Um, and to, to figure out ways to structure the world around us, 
um, to make sense out of really complicated situations. Um, and I think that that's something that I have carried forward, certainly into uh, my experience in the outdoors. I mean, that's um, that's about all you're doing on a mountain constantly, uh, moment to moment, is is assessing conditions uh, and making you know really big, sometimes life or death decisions, um, pretty quickly based off of the limited information you have and your ability to kind of structure the world around you. And then certainly, you know, in the work that I do, um, I, I specifically am focused on uh, new product development. Um, so anytime that we're looking to roll out a brand new product or looking to um, kind of replace uh, an existing product with a, with a newer version, um, I kind of oversee the process of understanding what the business requirements are, translating those into technical requirements for our engineering team, and then ensuring that that product um, is built to, to fit the need uh, and delivered into the market um, in, in time for the, the business need. Uh, and really most of what my day is, is trying to understand complicated situations with multiple stakeholders that all have different priorities and all have different interests in, to, in terms of when things will be need to be done and what, uh, features should or should not be, uh, present in, in our products. Um, and kind of consolidating that together and trying to make sense of it and then communicate it back, um, in a way that, that, um, helps people, uh, to get their head around the decisions at hand. Very cool. Um, tell me about a, a veteran or a veteran organization that you're familiar with that has you excited about what they're doing right now. Ooh, you know, I think one of the ones that always comes to mind for me, uh, when, when that kind of question comes up is, is the women over at Rumi Spice. Um, so Rumi Spice, for those who aren't familiar, was started by uh, two female veterans, uh, both West Point grads, uh, who had both spent uh, a substantial uh, amount of time over a couple of the different tours in, in Afghanistan. Um, and one of the one of the critical challenges uh, facing that country is that uh, from an agricultural standpoint, which is a huge um, industry, uh, particularly in the south, uh, where you see a lot of uh, a lot higher incidence of of uh, Taliban membership, um, one of the big issues is that um, the standard crops that people grow just are not that lucrative, um, and in fact, that's why a lot of um, the farmers in in southern Afghanistan grow poppies that they sell then sell on into the the drug trade for for opium, um, because it's the only way that they can make enough money to to kind of feel comfortable and secure, uh, and obviously any sort of illicit uh, black market trade. Um, the the kind of the profits from from that tend to accrue to uh, non-state actors uh, because of the the illegal nature of the market itself um, and what this uh, what these two women realize is that actually um, on a per hectare basics basis um, there is a crop that has high global demand and is more lucrative for uh, farmers in Afghanistan. And that region is uniquely suited for growing it. And that, that crop is saffron. Um, so what they've done is they've gone into Helmand um, and they're working with farmers there to transition from growing poppy to growing saffron. Uh, and then they've set up basically the entire supply chain to bring that saffron in. Um, and they've got partnerships with, with um, some of the top restaurants uh, around the U.S., I think but they started in Chicago um, to to basically be uh, a channel for uh, top tier chefs to get high quality saffron. Um, and I haven't checked in on the on the company in in a couple of years, so I'm not sure exactly what what they're up to now, what their footprint looks like. But that that to me is is a super inspiring story about a you know a couple of veterans coming together using the things that they know and the experiences that they've had. Um, to really try to have a fundamental impact on the world. Yeah, that's incredible. What was the name of that organization again? It's called Rumi Spice, R-U-M-I, like the uh, the old sure. uh, Persian poet. Okay, Rumi Spice. Interesting. I'm going to look into that. That's, that's really interesting. Adam, is, is there anything uh, either regarding uh, the work you're doing now or your experience on the summit that you want to uh, make sure is spoken on that we haven't gotten to yet? Um... 
You know, I, I don't I don't know that I have uh, a, a specific anecdote. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about uh, a little bit recently and, and um, trying to get thoughts down on paper and haven't had a chance to yet, but um, just the, the kind of um, the way in which veterans and the way in which um, people who spend their time in the backcountry approach um, trying to accomplish, to set and accomplish group goals, um, I think is one that, that um, people can, that basically that the business world and, and the, you know, those people who don't spend time in those environments could, uh, could learn a lot from. Uh, and the reason that I kind of bring that up is, um, you know, I, there's in, in trying to set and accomplish a group goal, um, you have the, the main objective, right? Um, and for us, that main objective was get to the summit of Denali. Um, you then have, uh, other goals within that main objective. Um, and those goals are, are equally, and in some cases more important than the, than the main objective. Um, so within the, the, um, Denali climb, our main objective was to get to the summit. Um, our goals included get home safe, don't kill each other, <laughs> get a lot of, get a lot of really good data, um, and get to the summit among a couple of others. Um, and really they're probably in that priority order, right? Like get home safe is always the number one priority, even though it's not the objective of what you're trying to do. Um, and so being able to understand how to balance as a group, um, the, that the objective is not always the number one priority, um, and understanding what the actual goals and the prioritization uh, is, um, is kind of this, this undercurrent that runs through, I think, both military planning and outdoor expedition planning. Um, and it really, for me, comes down to the, the concept of the commander's intent or the intent of what you're trying to do. Um, the mission is less important. The intent is critical. Um, so I think, I think that piece is one that I, I definitely want to figure out a better way to, to um, kind of capture and communicate out so that other people can learn from, from that experience. The other piece that I think is really important and, and really hard to balance, um, within a group, um, is that, you know, while there is definitely a group objective and underlying group goals that have a certain priority, each individual also has their own objective and group goals or in individual goals. Right. Um, and those priorities are going to be different and, and there may be mismatches across, across the team. Um, and I think that something that, that successful outdoor expeditions and certainly successful military units are able to do, um, is to, uh, kind of work through those those uh, differences where they come into clash um, in a way that is um, you know supportive and respectful of of the different um, kind of positions that people are coming from, but also um, make sure that the the objective and the goals that the group has um, do take primacy over individual concerns. Um, and that, that ability to trust the people to your left and your right. Um, and that ability to respect that, um, sometimes you have to put yourself second to the, to the greater goal, um, is definitely something that, that, you know, I've carried forward out of both of those experiences, um, and, and will continue to carry with me. Yeah. I think that, you know, I think that the, the idea of having to trust the people on your left and right, um, is something that, um, you almost take for granted, uh, a little bit when you're in the military. And, and I realized that when I got out and years of working outside the military and I just found myself still trusting people, but I found myself more, uh, anxious about, where I might have to pick up slack? Should I take on more? So that way, this per, you know, I don't know. In in the military, there was there was you knew that part of the part of being able to trust the people on your left and right, not just in like in in a, on a deployment or or in a combat situation, but just in in everyday operations, came with you knew there was accountability if they didn't. 
And I think that that's something that um, uh, feels like it's not as consistent as it as as we would want it to be when we leave the military. Is, am I making sense with that? Yeah, you are, and you know, certainly this is this is actually one of those like questions that keeps me up at night. Right? It's it's the question of. Um, you know, there were people that I served with in the military that I absolutely trust with my life. Like if I was in a firefight of any kind, if I was in a stressful situation where my life was in danger, um, I would, I would absolutely want them next to me. I never want to see them again other than that situation because (laughs) our personalities just did not match and I didn't like them as a person. Um, but like, how do you how do you how can you build that implicit trust um, even with people that you don't like um, within the fat so deeply ingrained in the fabric of the organization um, that even if I had never met somebody before in my life, if they were in uniform, I trusted them. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's it, it, it's it's the glue that holds the organization together. Um, and I've definitely been on expeditions in the backcountry where that trust starts to break down and it has some really disastrous and, and challenging effects. Um, and so it is, it is one of those big questions for me and actually something that I'm interested in exploring more, uh, in the future is what's the, what's the source of that trust? How does it grow in an organization? Um, how can you bring new people in and not lose that, that sense of trust? Um, and then once it's lost, what are the sources that cause it to be lost and how do you gain it back? Um, because I think I think that that's, you know, it's a critical element underlying the performance of teams is is trust. Well, Adam, I hope when you figure all that out that you publish your thoughts in some format so that way we can all, <laughs> all can learn from that. <laughs> Yeah, life goals. Yeah, because I, I, I imagine there's plenty of people out there, whether they're um, whether they're running their own organization or just simply a team member, that uh, that are all wondering the same thing uh, and know the value that that could bring. Should you be able to instill instill that sort of trust into uh, not only people in the, in the workplace but people just in a community? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Adam, really appreciate your time. Uh, learned a lot about uh, about the, the the summit and the work that you're doing out there in Kenya. All great stuff. Uh, thank you so much for for joining me and and uh, good luck out there in, in the work that you're doing. It's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm pretty excited to to keep at it. And uh, thanks for having me on. It was yeah. it was a pleasure to talk to you today. Of course. I was a gunner's mate, Tonkin Golf. Logistics, Ramstein. Medic, Kandahar. As a veteran, it doesn't matter when or where you served. Infantry, Camp Pendleton. Or what you did. The VA has benefits that may be useful to you right now. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. Big thanks to Adam for joining us. If you're curious about the group that went up Denali, you can check out their website, usx.vet. That's the organization uh, that made that expedition happen uh, and the ones that are doing expeditions and explorations in the future. This week's Medal of Honor citation reading is for the most recent Medal of Honor awarded to Garland Connor. He's in the United States Army, rank of first lieutenant, division, was 3rd Infantry Division during World War II. Year of Honor, 1945. Citation reads, The President of the United States of America, authorized by Act of Congress, March 3rd, 1863, was awarded in the name of Congress the Medal of Honor to First Lieutenant Garland M. Connor, United States Army, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his own life above and beyond the call of duty. First Lieutenant Garland Connor distinguished himself by acts of gallantry and intrepidity while serving with Company K, 3rd Battalion, 7th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Infantry Division. On the morning of January 24, 1945, Near the town of Houston, France, German forces 
ferociously counterattacked the front left flank of the 7th Infantry Regiment with 600 infantry troops, 6 Mark VI tanks, and tank destroyers. Lieutenant Connor, having recently returned to his unit after recovering from a wound received in an earlier battle, was working as an intelligence officer in the 3rd Battalion Command Post at the time of the attack. Understanding the devastating effect that the advancing enemy armor could have on the battalion, Lieutenant Connor immediately volunteered to run straight into the heart of the enemy assault to get a better position from which he could direct friendly artillery on the advancing enemy forces. With complete disregard for his own safety, Lieutenant Connor maneuvered 400 yards through the enemy artillery fire that destroyed trees in his path and rained shrapnel all around him, while unrolling telephone wire needed to communicate with the battalion command post. Upon reaching the battalion's front line, he continued to move forward under the enemy assault to a position 30 yards in front of defending United States forces, where he plunged into a shadowed ditch that provided minimal protection from the advancing enemy's heavy machine gun and small arms fire. While rounds impacting all around him, Lieutenant Connor calmly directed multiple fire missions, adjusting round after round of artillery from his prone position until the enemy was forced to halt its advance and seek cover behind a nearby dike. For three hours, Lieutenant Connor remained in his compromised position enduring the repeated onslaught of the German infantry, which at one point advanced to within five yards of his position. As German infantry regrouped and began to mass in an overwhelming assault, Lieutenant Connor ordered friendly artillery to concentrate directly on his own position, having resolved to die if necessary to destroy the enemy advance. Ignoring the friendly artillery shells blanketing his position and exploding mere feet from him, Lieutenant Connor continued to direct artillery fire on the enemy assault swarming around him until the German attack was finally broken. By his heroism and disregard for his own life, Lieutenant Connor stopped the enemy advance. The artillery he expertly directed, while under constant enemy fire, killed approximately 50 German soldiers and wounded an estimated 100 more, preventing what would have undoubtedly been heavy friendly casualties. His actions are in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service and reflect great credit upon himself, the 3rd Infantry Division, and the United States Army. We honor his service. Thank you, everybody, for taking the time to listen. Please go into your podcatcher of choice, whether that be iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, maybe use Overcast or Podcast or something like that. Uh, leave us a rating and review. It helps us reach uh, another audience. It uh, helps encourage people to check us out. We greatly appreciate it. Before. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at DEPT Vet Affairs for more images from our community. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off.